The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 16, 1-8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will, wo- who will ro- roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment seized them. And they said nothing to any, anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church on Music Row. Uh, I'm the lead pastor. My name is Stacy Croft. I hope I get to see you outside as the, the rumble and tumble begins with the egg hunt and uh, all the reception that we have. Thank you for coming this morning. Um, if you're new here or even if you've come a number of times and you're back, I'd love to get to know you. Um, I'd love to meet you. Grab me afterwards or email me. Uh, I hope you signed that black book, and if you put your email, I'd love to grab coffee or lunch just to tell you kind of what's, what's this church about, who, who are we, and hear your, ultimately, honestly, hear your story. Love to get to know you. Um, those people in this room uh, that know that every time I say that in a service, they're like, he really does that, so um, I really will. Love to get to know you. Well, um, <laughs> this last um, November, I was thankful and and grateful that my family and I were taken to Disney World. And I don't know if you've had that opportunity or or taken someone as a gift, which is really, really nice. But it was quite an experience, uh, as as people will say. There's nothing really to prepare you for it. Uh, You go thinking, and I don't know if you see all the commercials all the time, of the Magic Kingdom and all this, you know, wonder and excitement, and you get there, and and it really is that. I mean, you're you're whisked into this world that is just this glorious, you know, like, you know, everything from food to experience. I mean, they have, I even learned while I was there, the school that they have to train the cast members, as they call themselves, uh, is super intense and to, to, to make this fantasy uh, somewhat of a reality to you. But I, I was hit in the face pretty hard when I uh, went with my family and we were in Epcot Center and uh, we were deciding, hey, we're going to ride the Nemo ride. So we get on this ride, and uh, my wife and, uh, and, and our kids are in one of the clamshells, as uh, my in-laws are in the other. She's trying to take a picture of us. My brother-in-law reaches out to grab the phone. The phone falls in between two clamshells, and instinctively, I jump out of my shell. And uh, I, right as I put my foot on that conveyor belt, lights come on, like people storm down the little weird coral tunnel, whatever the thing is, sees me, and I start being walked back. I'm like, but there's just a phone right there. I'm just trying to grab it. And they're walking me back. 
they give me all these lines. They're like, sir, you cannot get out of your shell. I was like, what, why? I mean, it's, it's going, he goes, you wouldn't get out of a car without a seatbelt, right? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get in a car and drive around without your seatbelt on. I'm like, it's a shell going two miles an hour. How can I, I was smacked in the face. And, and they're like talking to each other. Do they kick me out of Epcot? You know, they're still, the rest of our family is on the ride. Well, I, as I really took that moment in along with many others, if you go, I want to tell you, the commercials don't tell you what it's really like. Because not only do you come in and you're hoping to experience this reality, you leave exhausted every day. It's really fun. But man, I have never seen more spouses want to kill each other. I have never seen more children pulled behind. I've never seen more t-shirts trying to say, hey, we're in this family. It is smack with reality. And I think when we look at the resurrection story, when we encounter Christianity, it can be like that. It's this, okay, there's this great fantasy, this amazing story of God's work of redemption. And, you know, many of you are coming, and Lord willing, in this church, maybe you've come back, maybe it's the first time in a long time, maybe you haven't come to church ever, and this is your first time ever to, to be in a church. Maybe the b- church is, is something that bores you, maybe you're cynical, or, or those kind of things. And, and you wonder, okay, where does this fantasy that we're talking about, this thing we sing these glorious songs to, meet the reality that I know I'm faced with every single day? Is there, is there that? Or is it like a magic kingdom? We just hope it sprinkles and it just works. It fits into our life. You know, you may have heard of of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien who wrote these great fantasy stories. Actually, before them, where they got their genius was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And this man wrote a lot about fantasy. But he wrote it in a different way. He He said this about fantasy. He said, fantasy is not something that lifts you up out of reality. It actually helps you lift up and make sense of reality. So when we work from imagination and fantasy and story, that there has to be some grounding of story that points to how we make sense of our reality. Listen to what he said. He said, G.K. Chesterton said, fairy tales do not give the child his first um, idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is the first clear idea of possible defeat of a boogeyman. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides is for him, a St. George, a, a, a knight in shining armor, to destroy or kill the dragon. In other words, we've always known that we're in some sort of story. And we, can, we don't have to have a deep imagination to know of the fears and doubts and scary things we face. What we long for, the fairy tale we really need and desire is that night to come, is the one to rescue us. How does, how does that fantasy of, of defeating all the darkness, all the sin, actually meet the reality? That there has to be something to this story that's more than just a legend. It's more than just written in some book that's old. It has actual coordinates on a map that we can point to. And so this morning, I just want to answer that question. I want to answer the question, is this a real story or not? And I want us to look at it honestly. I want us to look at this passage, particularly from Mark, honestly, about the resurrection. Because here's the deal. The Bible itself says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we're the most to be pitied. Like, if the resurrection, what we're doing here, is not true, then it's actually really pathetic that we would celebrate it. 
The Bible says that, not me. So let's look at that reality. I want us to first ask one of a, a few questions, but the first question is, how do I know it's true? How can I believe this? Uh, one of my favorite uh, op-ed writers, David Brooks, who's written in uh, a number of things, New York Times usually, and The Atlantic and other things, he wrote about an article called Kicking the Secular Habit, uh, um, uh, Secularist Habit. And he said that materialism, what we typically live in in our American 21st century, is that we are so used to the very pragmatic uh, that the idea of what is working best is what is best. That is, as we live in a technological age that continues, religion is going to diminish. He says, mm, that's, not so, that's not so true. Listen to what he says. Like a lot of people these days, I'm a recovering secularist. I accepted the notion that the world becomes richer and better educated. It becomes less religious. But it's now clear that secularization theory is untrue. The human race does not necessarily get less religious as it grows richer and better educated. We are living through one of the greatest periods of scientific progress and the creation of wealth, and at the same time, we're in the midst of a religious boom. It is, and it's true. If you look, and it's very hard for us often in our myopic view of our American culture to think of that, but if you poll, if you look across the globe, you'll see that with all of what we have now and continues to grow, religion is not diminishing. It's actually growing. Materialism doesn't solve the issue of our story, of the reality of what was really our need. It does give us more information regarding it, but doesn't solve it. And when these women particularly go to this tomb, they find it empty. How do they believe it? Look at 16, chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, if you have a Bible or a phone. Mark is one of the, is the first gospel ever written, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. That's why it's so short. Mark wrote this gospel to say, who is Jesus? Boom, let me tell you right away. And listen to what he says at the very end, last chapter. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now this is a very normal activity of Jewish burial. They would go to tombs. And there would be rocks in front of them. Because they were tombs, they wanted to, to not only from grave robbers, but also decay. Just the smell. They were going and bringing spices. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. Look, they expected a dead body to be there. They expected someone to need to actually help them move the stone so they could actually prepare the body as they usually do. Prepare the body with spices so that even in the decay that it wouldn't smell, that it was wrapped in cloth, and that one day as it did decay, they could gather the bones and carry them and usually put them and deposit them into a box for them for later. But here they found an open grave, the empty tomb. Mark's gospel is written in a way to show you there's a certification that Jesus was expected to be dead. Not just from religious people, but from the people who killed him. They thought he was dead. See, the Jews even believed, after Jesus had said multiple times in this same gospel, that he was going to rise from the grave, but they were like, no, that doesn't happen. The word resurrection to them didn't make sense. To them, that wasn't reality. Reality was, okay, now Jesus may be in heaven and one day we will see him and there might be a resurrection far down the road that one day we'll all be together in a happy story. 
But for him to resurrect now made no sense. Why in the world would Jesus resurrect in flesh now? They didn't make sense of that. And it's easy for us to look at a passage like this and say, well, they didn't have all the you know, understanding that we have scientifically, but that's not true. If you read this passage in multiple passages of the Bible, they understood science. They understood if someone's dead, they're supposed to be in a grave. <laughs> Their astonishment, even in, in uh, <clears throat> uh, when they came to the tomb in verse 5, it says they were alarmed. That Greek word means they were taken aback. They had no idea what was going on. Even at the end of this, after this angel, who they don't even recognize at first, tells them what happened, they still are seized with fear. Because to them, dead people don't come out. The empty tomb has to be a reality. It has to be something, because more than this, the, the, the people in that day, faith and reason weren't, weren't separated as much as we think now. They had faith. They believed that he was dead. It was just according to reason. It went together. Just as much as Jesus shouldn't be walking on water or feed 5,000 people, they never believed it. And even at that moment, they still were off hiding. They they weren't hiding thinking, oh, he's going to raise up and come to us. Everybody was dispersed because they knew science. They knew that that he was dead. And not only this, look, the, the eyewitnesses here, there's a reason that Mark goes to this length of even naming these three women. First is to name them meant Mark's gospel was written in a time period only a few decades after Jesus' death. Meaning you could go to these women when this gospel was circulated and actually ask them about it. You could ask them about this report. You could ask others. In fact, Luke's gospel begins this way. I began an orderly account. He was actually a historian. See, the gospels are written in a way of history, of prose, not just of a great story, but let me tell you about the best story you've ever heard and one that I didn't believe myself. See, Mark Mark followed the apostle Peter, and that's one reason Peter's name is mentioned here. But he also gathered this information from these eyewitnesses. This is why we have Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. These these women, and not to mention the fact that women would be named in this passage means that it gives credibility at all. People wouldn't, in those days, women's testimony in court was never held. In fact, there were Greek philosophers who would come after this time period and read the Gospels and think it was ridiculous based on the fact that these were the eyewitnesses to the tomb, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Why would, it would be counterproductive to put that in a Gospel, to make something that would go out publicly. Why would you do that? if it weren't true, if it weren't something that was needed to be held. The naming, and, and not just that, but in a million other places, it says that Jesus, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul himself, he says that Jesus appeared not just to the disciples, but to fi- some 500 people at one time. Seven, up five, 12, all of it. He began to appear and show himself to multiple people, eyewitnesses. And Paul writes this in even their names to say, you can go ask them. If this was a false account, we would know. You would know that here. And not only that, and I kind of nerded it out a little bit, historically. 
not just religious followers of Christ at that time said this, but people who weren't. In the third century, there was a historian named Julius Africanus who writes about the darkness that happened during Christ's uh, crucifixion. That there was this massive darkness that went over the land. There was a guy named Pliny the Younger. How about that name? Wouldn't we all like that? Someone the Younger. Pliny the Younger who wrote to the Emperor Trajan asking for advice on how to deal with Christians. This is in the second century, long after. Deal with Christians who refused to worship the emperor and worship Christ as if to a god. How about Tacitus, another historian? Wrote Christians received their name from Christ who had, now listen to this, Christ who had been executed by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And then finally another one who said, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Look, these are all accounts of, of Greek philosophers and even Jewish historians, Josephus, a, a historian who was actually born seven years after Jesus' death and wrote all during his time period, said this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. It is lawful to call him a man if he, for if he was <clears throat> a man a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as to receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over him many to the Jews and many of the, many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Now, Josephus was still Jewish and didn't necessarily believe, but this is what he was writing the account. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, he had him condemned to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. And for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. This is a Jewish historian that had no connection to that whatsoever during that first century at the same. What, what, what is this? You, you could say, look, I could sit here and list more and more and more. But here's the point. You can say anything you want about the Jesus story, the resurrection story. But you cannot, you cannot say, well, did it really happen or not? It's, it's, it's given you fact after fact after fact that Jesus on a map in coordinates you can find where this happened. The question is, what do you do with it? In fact, that's what the word gospel means. That's why Mark and the other gospels begin that way. The word gospel isn't a religious term. It's actually a broader term. It says it's a proclamation of something that happened, not something that we give opinion to. It's actually, it was used all through the empire to say, the gospel according to Emperor Trajan or the gospel according to about the, the news of a, war, a victory in a war, an ascension of a throne. The gospel is something we have to respond to. So how do we respond to it? So how is it relevant? Look, this week our city is becoming again the it city. I don't know if you know. You know, we have like the NFL draft. We got hockey playoffs. We got marathons. We got co huge concerts. I mean, like it, you, all of you are either annoyed or here because of the traffic, Right? It's crazy. It's it city. Okay, what in the world does what we're talking about here have to do with that? That's the point, isn't it? What does it have to do with that? How does it make sense of the reality that we have to connect it to? I was, we had our uh, week noonday services this week, and I loved it. Well, somebody who was preaching this week used this quote from um, <clears throat> from uh, Walker Percy the great southern writer, who said this, it's not the big events that worry me, wars and rumors of wars. In fact, my problem is how to live from one ordinary minute to the next on a Wednesday afternoon. 
Isn't that the real question? I mean, how is this relevant to me? Okay, great. We can maybe find the coordinates of Jesus' resurrection, okay? We can see where he lived and walked and breathed. But how, what does it have to do with me? Look, there's a, there's a thought about the resurrection these days that's con- considered that we think of the resurrection in such high esteem because we need it to be true. That's all, that's all that matters. It's called cognitive dissonance. In fact, we do that a lot. It's, it's a way that we try and manage something that's so horrendous and so difficult that we leap the data, we leap our reality to try and calm ourselves, to try and live in a reality of peace. But what if this was really true? What if we didn't have to make that leap? I mean, that wouldn't, would, would it make sense to you and me that all of these people who were eyewitnesses would lay their very own life on the line for something they thought was untrue. That they just believed so hard, oh, he has to be from the dead. He had to raise from the dead. Well, first of all, they didn't even think that in terms of the way of their resurrection. But second, if they did, would it make sense if they were said, you're going to be crucified for that? How do I deal with all these Christians who say they believe this thing? We're just going to put them in an arena and let lions attack them. Would, 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 they, would they find their faith helpful in the reality of suffering if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead? If flesh wasn't put on this? See, it, it makes sense because why in the world would they, would they need somebody to come find them, to come back to them? to pursue them. See, they brought spices because they were going back to their normal lives. Notice, when they come to this this place, they think they're going to do what they normally do. They thought the story was just as other stories. There had been many people who had actually come and claimed to be the Messiah. And yet, it crumbled and all fell away. I remember having a discussion, and some of you in this room may be in this place, with a Jewish man Really good discussion. We used to have these very, very intense discussions about uh, the Bible. And he was emphatic that Jesus and the, even the, the references in the Old Testament, ones like we read earlier from the Psalms, really were not connected to him. They were connected to other people. One of the things that he said to me at one moment was to say, hey, look, I, we have record of a lot of people rising from the dead. We have re- there, are, there are records of resurrections. I mean, you know, why is Jesus so special? And I thought for a moment, I thought, okay, I'll give you that. Even, even if I give you the fact that there may be other resurrections from the dead, can it and does it impact followers like this one? Where are they now? How do they change the people that follow them? What did their resurrection serve? Was it just that they came back from the dead? Or was it that he came back from the dead to defeat death? See, the resurrection isn't just something that we just look at and go, gosh, this is a great thing. That's a great story. It's something where he comes back from the dead in order to defeat it, in order for us to see all the things that we pursue to give us life, to give us love, to give us value, to give us worth, to say those things will not, will always come short. Look, it is so easy to live in this city and to be a part of an it city and do a million things and feel like your weekends are full. 
to feel like your, your, your plate is full, your wor- job is full. People here love their work. We, we, we cherish work, and we love it in our church. That's why we have an institutes for that kind of thing. But one of the things that we need to remember is those are all tastes of something that we can't get past. We, we need someone to come and shift our paradigm. Think about this. Why do we meet on a Sunday? The reason we meet on a Sunday is because the, all these Jewish people who, and Gentiles who were brought in, they all worshipped on a Saturday. Why in the world would they shift their entire culture, their entire life, their entire paradigm, their glasses of the world to a Sunday if the resurrection didn't happen on that day? They changed their entire world for that. This is why it's so important that our Sunday isn't the end of the week. It's actually the beginning. It is the lenses by which we leave here and go enjoy the marathons and go into our offices and go into our homes and go into our families and relationships and also with all the difficulty and suffering and and trial in it and can do so because there's something that really gives worth to it because those things are not an end in of themselves. This is the beginning of how we make sense of it. This is how we, we make sense of all of life through this. This great historian, N.T. Wright, his pastor, he said this, the message of the resurrection is that the world matters, that the injustice and the pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things in you and out there. And that we are a part of a great plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory over that, all of that. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is just a wish fulfillment. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was probably right to say it's just for wimps. If we don't really realize that Jesus actually had to take on flesh, die on the cross, and take that flesh and be raised out of the grave again, then what's the point of our social justice? What gives social justice the teeth? What gives the actual leaning into difficulty and suffering in our families teeth? What helps us help those of you that are going through infertility, cancer, illness what gives it the teeth to know that you actually have hope if it weren't for a story where a man took on flesh to actually engage with the same suffering that you do you know what the early heresies heresies were errors that threw the church off of worship the early heresies weren't that Jesus was not God it was that he couldn't be a man you know, we struggle in our time period of, okay, could, could Jesus really be God? 
You know what was hard for them? They didn't think he could be man. How could this person take on flesh? You even heard that in Josephus, this Jewish historian say, this man, if he could be called that. Because God had to come in that way. My son was asking me, even last night, such a beautiful way as we were falling asleep. <clears throat> he said, how could he, how could he have flesh? Like, how could he come in flesh? Like, and it is such a hard thing for us to grasp. Other than the fact that God had to love us in a way by sending his son in flesh and bones to identify with every single thing that you do. Look, don't take my word for it. Take Bono's word for it, right? That's what Bono says. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. Had a lot of things to say along the lines of other great prophets, like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm prophet. I'm saying I am the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ who was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. The idea the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed, turned upside down by a nutcase, is far-fetched for me. What? How is it relevant? <laughs> really, the question is, why do you need it, right? I was in a line yesterday, I'm sure so many of you were, at a grocery store, and it was so interesting where the conversation went, because when I was standing there checking out, the two checkers were actually having a discussion about Easter, uh, right when I pulled up. And uh, I just quietly was using my card in the reader while I listened to them both. One of them saying, oh, Easter's my favorite. No, no, no. I'm not quite sure why she said that or what it was. We didn't have time to dig into it. But the other one said, I, yeah, I, I don't really like Easter. I, don't, I haven't celebrated something. I haven't been to church in like three years, like Christmas Eve. And he kept going. And she was like, well, why? And he said, man, the religious pressure. Like, there's just all this pressure about it. And I want to encourage you something this morning. I remember, and I've told some of you this, I know what he's talking about. I remember as a pastor sitting in a church listening to a sermon on Easter, and all my mind could think of is how I just couldn't do enough as a Christian. See, isn't that what it really gets to? Okay, it may be relevant for culture. Maybe he really did come in flesh. But what, what is it good? What do, how do I need it? Because there is a difference between the religious pressure and resurrection. If he really raised from the dead, your mind should not be racing to, I need to start reading my Bible this year. This is not like a, Easter is not supposed to be as I struggled with, as I, I literally, like, I cannot tell you. As a pastor, I was sweating in fear, thinking, instead of the resurrection, thinking about the religious pressure that I have. Instead of the freedom that we have. See, if you're sitting here thinking that this is like, the Easter is maybe the New Year's Eve of, of your faith, it's not. This is 
just the marker of the freedom that is. You being in church doesn't set Jesus, bring him out of the tomb. Do, Do you know that? Do I know that? You being here doesn't make Jesus the one who resurrected. He resurrected. How are you going to respond? How do you take it? Because in the moments when Jesus is sitting here, and and, and listen to what the angel says, verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. There you will see him just as he told you. He had told them. He had told them and told them and told them. We have the record and account. But what that's not enough for us. Wasn't enough for them. He went to them. Peter, just before this, denied Jesus three times publicly. Like the guy whose name means rock of faith. Denies him three times. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't just send a word. He goes himself. Because it's not enough. The fairy tale has to be bigger. It has to be more. As as Chesterton continued to say, if you keep boogies and boogeymen and goblins away from children, they would make them up for themselves. One small child can imagine monsters too big and black and to get into any picture and give them names too unearthly and cacophonous to have them occurred in the cries of any lunatic. The child, to begin with, commonly likes horrors and he continues to indulge in them. Think about that. The horror of us, right? The horror of us. And yet, what does he do? He comes to respond by defeating those dragons. By coming to us. We don't have to create the fairy tale of things going wrong. What we need is someone to complete the story to bring us out from them. That's why he seeks us. That's why he's on the map. That's why he does it to deal with us where we are. Praise be to this Christ. Let me pray for us.